Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, earth-shattering surprise there. We'll get yet another view on the post-left, this from Eric Baker. And then Jose Sanchez will take a critical look at Afro-pessimism. Over the last few months, I've done a couple of interviews on the topic of post-leftism, which blends strangely into the newest iteration of the New Right, ostensibly anti-elitist, but also hostile to what is dismissed as wokeness, or in an older iteration, identity politics. Here's another view, this from the historian Eric Baker, a lecturer at Harvard and author of The Only Way Out is Through Against Reactionary Anti-Capitalism on the Christian socialist website Bias Magazine. As the Bias subhead puts it, it's a critique of anti-politics, quote, that looks to traditional aesthetic and religious pursuits as an antidote to the spiritual dead end of conventional woke liberalism and free market conservatism. About ten minutes into the interview, I use the term PMC, apologies for slipping into jargon, That stands for professional managerial class, a term coined in the 1970s by Barbara and John Ehrenreich to refer to a stratum below the owning class that administers the lives of workers. It's become a term of derision for one-dimensional class-only types who think that just because people who do indoor work know heavy lifting, as Bob Dole said of the vice presidency a few decades ago, that means they aren't really working class. Here's Eric Baker. You know, before I started doing this, I suddenly had the thought, are we giving these guys too much airtime, these post-leftists? How significant a phenomenon are they? I, I think that it's a, it's a question that I've certainly grappled with myself. One of the things that I tried to do in this essay was give a sense of its, its kind of creep. How much of a readership some of these like really lunatic types have is, is anyone's guess. But I think that there are certain ways of thinking, some sort of habits that um, do have a a much wider reach and have a certain attractiveness to them. And and for that reason, it's useful to try to follow them to their ultimate conclusion and some of the the more extreme characters in order to understand the danger that that is there to be a bit more critical when we find ourselves lapsing into these ways of thinking. I recall when when Compact Magazine was launched, um, some friends of mine and I made a big deal out of it, but I wonder how many people actually were aware of it or knew what it was or cared. yeah. Although, on the other hand, people may find themselves reflecting that mode of thought without even knowing where it comes from. Exactly. Yeah, I think that, I think that that's closer to, to my own view of, of what's going on. If you're really in the loop, you know, it's easy to, to laugh some of this stuff off. But clearly, these people have a lot of money and, you know, they can boost this stuff. And people who, who might not really understand what's going on can look and say, well, yeah, you know, I, I think there's, there's stuff that's wrong on the left and the right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read on for a, a diagnosis of what's going, what's wrong with our politics and, um, you know, without necessarily kind of seeing the full picture. I would set this historically, um, the development of this post-liberal or post-left movement or whatever you want to call it. It seems to be a product of the collapse of, I don't know, the Sanders moment, the socialism boomlet, which I don't think it's over, but it certainly may have crested. Um, there's a lot of confusion around, political confusion, and I think a lot of people are disoriented and without any kind of leadership or orientation. Is that, uh, is that how you see things? Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. I think that a lot of people felt this, this real moment. I mean, just to start off in, in 2016, you know, the first Sanders campaign, opening people's horizons just beyond the, the extremely narrow window of, of acceptable ideas within the, the Democratic Party. And then in, in 2020, I think you saw not only an even more serious Sanders campaign, but then the juxtaposition of, of that moment with the once-in-a-lifetime a crisis of the pandemic, as well as the, the George Floyd uprising. I think that, that there was a moment where people really felt like there was a possibility of change in even a more drastic sense than something like Bernie Sanders winning the, the presidential election. And that kind of elapsed. And I think that, you know, has left a lot of people in a, in a kind of strange situation because people still feel that sense of crisis, that there's there's something really dramatic going on, um, that, that something is, is coming to an end, the, the legitimacy of certain institutions, the, 
the kind of viability of particular older ways of, of governing and thinking. But I think that there's a real loss of, of hope in you know the idea that anything good is 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 going to come out of this this conjuncture. So everyone's favorite Antonio Gramsci quote that gets bandied about online all the time about um, you know the, the oldest dying and the newest struggling to be born. I, I think that the, that quote's popularity really testifies to this a sense of uh, that a lot of people have that we've reached a dead end, we've reached a kind of crisis point, but maybe the, the kind of more conventional and, and sort of mass political uh, forms of um, creating a new world associated with the, the Sanders campaign and the broad-based left are, are not viable. And so as a result, I, I, you know, I think people have, have turned to more kind of inward spiritual or aesthetic kind of sense of resistance, which, uh, you know, as, as I explore in this, in this essay, it's, it's easier said than done because our, our private lives and our religious, artistic, cultural family lives, they're not actually kind of cut off from, from politics, they're not outside capitalism or the kind of turmoil of our world around us. So people who want to try to disengage end up becoming these kind of reactionary culture warriors. Now, in your piece, you mentioned a Freudian idea that in times of trouble, we want to go back to the womb. As I recall, um, Eric Erickson's uh, notion of identity crisis, one wants to go back to a more familiar time. Uh, it does seem like we're experiencing some kind of collective version of that. And into this comes a post-left with a proposed return to tradition, in some sense, as a way of curing our alienated distress. What exactly do they mean by tradition? What is the content of this return? It varies uh, from person to person, kind of thinker to thinker. The the real common denominator that's I think is, is most salient right now is traditional ideas about the family and, and about sex and gender. You know, and that's why there's there's such a strong element of transphobia, but also I think increasingly an even older kind of uh, old school homophobia that is I think an, an important part of the post left identity. What what they see to distinguish as distinguishing themselves from other leftists. They support Medicare for all, but, you know, they, they also think that, you know, resuscitating the kind of heterosexual nuclear family form is, is an imperative. When men were men and women were women and exactly. place, right? Yeah. Yeah. For some other people, it is a more explicitly religious component. You know, there are various online personalities who, you know, are at, at least in theory kind of returning to, Catholicism. I'm I'm a bit skeptical about how how much of a trend that is, but certainly I, I think that it's it's all it's all bound. There, there's a, a certain kind of aesthetic vision of the past that focuses on smaller scale community, uh, a certain kind of imagined kind of depoliticized pre-modern kind of artistic expression, traditional family, sex and gender roles, and to some extent church, you know, whatever, whatever that means. However, seriously, people are really thinking about it theologically, the, the idea at least of it being a, a, a good thing that, that once upon a time, you know, everyone was going to, to church every Sunday, taking moral instruction from the Catholic church or from their local pastor or whatever. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's a repeal to of a return to hierarchy. Not, of course, that hierarchy yeah. ever went away, but in some yeah. emotional sense, it's when uh, yeah. people listen to their betters and follow their directions. Yeah. And I think you really see this in the, the kind of view of class that you find among a lot of these people, which is, I think, one area where the rhetoric is particularly deceptive. And I think registers the, what you call the, the socialism boomlet. There's a real effort to speak in the language of class conflict, class struggle, even. But it's in service of a vision of class hierarchy, ultimately, where what they object to is, is the fact that there's turmoil. The ultimate end goal here is a kind of class structure where the working class imagined as a kind of homogenous cultural unit is kind of left alone. They can have their traditional folkways free from elite interference in this in this narrative um but then the the flip side of that is that these are also workers who are are not trying to seize economic power i think in the in the the way that the 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 left has yeah these are not the grave diggers of capitalism exactly yeah there you know there was this wild essay yesterday by one of these guys that i talked about in the piece curtis garvin where he has this elaborate jrr tolkien riff 
he describes American class structure in, in terms of hobbits and elves. It's actually somewhat useful for, for understanding the way these people think about class. You know, they, their, their vision of the working class is, is these kind of Tolkien-esque hobbits who are at the bottom of the pyramid in a, a sense of, of hierarchy, but they're, they're left alone. You know, they can, they can tend to their, their own ways, and this will require strong men who are not themselves from the working class to kind of combat the other elites who are trying to, you know, supposedly impose new ways of, of living and thinking on them. This is largely a fantastic working class. The actual working class is full of all kinds of people, immensely diverse, queers and trans people and all kinds of things. The unspoken assumption of a lot of this discourse is that we're talking about the white working class and the working class is anything but white. So it's just serving a fa- an elite fantasy, right, of a return to some kind of social stability uh, in some imagined past. Yeah, exactly. I think the, you know, you see a lot of these people that they kind of give the game away when they, you know, there'll be rhetorical gestures they make towards supporting unions, but then get the the Starbucks union movement that's appearing before our eyes, where you have a lot of leaders who are young, queer and trans people who maybe have college degrees, who aren't, you know, obviously working in um, in industrial workplaces of uh, the kind of memorialized past. And these figures in the post-left, you know, have responded to this with just a ton of derision and, and uh, snobbery in a way. I mean, it's, it's, we support unions in the sense that I wish it was 1950, not in the sense that, you know, I'm actually going to um, support this concrete battle of concrete workers against one of the service sector's largest corporations. Yeah, it's like uh, they want the horny-handed sons of toil and they see these characters as uh, PMC, basically. Yeah, exactly. You quote, I, I noticed this myself when I read the piece, uh, it's really struck me, um, Sohab Amari, uh, or Mari, of, of, uh, of Compact, uh, commenting on the Labor Notes Conference, yeah. criticizing his own comrades, really. This tendency bizarrely classes adjunct professors and the like among the ruling class and oligarchs like Elon Musk to be a working class hero because they defy some progressive orthodoxy. Um, it is a very through the looking glass conception of class hierarchy. Yeah, you know, and uh, I mean, of course, being an adjunct professor myself, I'm, I'm biased here, but I really do think that there's something that's perverse about, there's a sense of confidence in the way that these people lay lay claim to the kind of authentic tradition of, of the left um, or, or socialism. And, you know, the, the idea that socialism is about salvaging a kind of traditional culture from the ravages of, of capitalism. I mean, you, you see that at certain points in, in the history of the left, but the history of the labor movement is, is full of examples of cross-occupational collaboration, collaboration with workers of different kinds of educational backgrounds, you know, even workers with, you know, different kinds of cultural and, and, and social attitudes, this sense that before 2016 or whatever, everyone understood that the, the labor movement was just about getting burly white guys raises. I mean, it's, it's just preposterous. It's a real insult, I think, to the very heterogeneous tradition of labor activism, both in the United States and, and around the world. I'm speaking with the historian Eric Baker. I was pleased to see you um, bringing in Melinda Cooper and her uh, analysis of the use of family values to promote neoliberalism. Yeah, could you talk about how that, that fits into the analysis? Yes, there's there's a, a terrific book that I, I think is is finally starting to to get the recognition that it deserves by um, political scientist historian Belinda Cooper. That's a reassessment of a kind of transitionary moment in the the seventies, eighties, nineties, you know, Reagan, Clinton era neoliberal policymaking, which you know everyone knows, you know, in the back of their head that this is also a moment of resurgence of the of the religious right and evangelicalism as a, as a potent political force. But typically the story has been that, that there, you know, this was basically a kind of opportunistic relationship that these neoliberal policymakers threw a bone to this culturally conservative coalition in order to get elected. And so that there's actually this kind of strange marriage between the two. And what she shows is that if you actually look at these policy debates, a lot of these neoliberal policies were actually argued for in terms of family values, that language, that that cultural moment. So for example, one shift that you see in this period is the substitution of kind of transfer payments in the welfare state for debt financing of 
access to housing or, or education. And what she shows is that when people in the, the Reagan administration, for example, were, were arguing for some of these policy changes, what they were saying was, you know, this is going to strengthen the family. This is going to restore the economic importance of the family unit because families are going to have to stick together, develop those those bonds. Children are going to have to be deferential to their parents so that parents will take out student loans for them. And conversely, they understood that a generous welfare state, especially one in the Scandinavian model where family status doesn't really matter, marital yeah. status doesn't matter, that undermines the family. And they understood yeah. that very carefully. So the, they, they, these they, two sets of policies went together very nicely, like love and marriage, right? Yeah, right. So much of the of the, the neoliberal and neoconservative movement, the 70s and 80s, was a, a backlash to, to the 1960s, where a lot of the radicals of the 60s would, in the same breath, you know, be, be challenging racial and, and gender hierarchy and challenging capitalism, challenging post-war Fordist status quo. If you take off the, the kind of blinders of our contemporary discourse and you actually go back into this historical moment, you see, you know, people on both sides really understood this as a, a fight between people on the one hand who were committed to challenging hierarchy, both in the, the kind of social family realm and in the economic realm, and people on the other hand who had a sense of these hierarchies as very much interlacing and, and reinforcing one another. So family hierarchy supports economic hierarchy and also vice versa. I've been struck by um, the, the parallel between the present and that late 60s period you just mentioned. A lot of people are moving right now around trans issues, in particular gender relations, racial issues. And it seems parallel to that of the late 60s, early 70s, when there's a backlash against feminism, a more militant brand of black uh, politics and the early days of gay liberation. I mean, it just seemed like these, what are often marginalized or caricatures as social issues, really seem to have a potent effect on, on people's politics more broadly. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that that, that comparison shows one of the, the claims that these post-left types make is that the movements like anti-racism or, or feminism or gay liberation, because they're supposedly merely social or cultural, they're no real threat to capitalism, or they will always just be kind of co-opted, or they're even engineered by the ruling class. Everyone has seen brands posting on Twitter about whatever their um, support for, for Pride Month. But I think that going back to that 60s moment, that's not to say that anti-racism and, and feminism today don't have any kind of radical edge, but you know that that moment, I think, really clearly shows before a whole wave of repression and backlash and state persecution in, in some instances, you really saw these what these movements could be, and I think still could be in our own time, the kind of anti-racism, the kind of gender and sexuality liberation. There was no question that the, the powers that be in the, in the late 60s understood these movements as, as threats to Social order. You wrote this for a Christian socialist publication, and you know I interviewed uh, James Chapel about uh, his piece for the same publication, The Bias, um, a few months ago. And you open your essay with this consideration of the the history of religion on the left. A lot of leftists have been secular, um, anti-religious, even seeing it as you know a tool of elite power, of ruling class power, as a way of seducing or coercing um, submission out of the masses. How, how should we think of religion at this current moment? About 20 years ago, Slavoj Žižek was arguing that Christianity brought the idea of revolution into Western culture, like it was going to overturn hierarchies, uh, and the whole idea of redemption was in some sense analogous to the idea of revolution. That's the opposite of this conservative notion of religion. So, yeah, how should we think about religion in this current context, um, and should uh, some of the secular leftists, among which I'd probably number myself but in a diminishing way, uh, how should we think about the, uh, our Christian allies, or our religious allies, not just Christian? Most of this article is, is critiquing a, a certain kind of uh, religious and, and particularly Christian uh, anti-capitalism, but you know I, I, I do also want to to gesture towards a different vision of the role of a faith on the left. I mean, I, I think that it's really important for religious leftists to take very seriously the the kind of orthodox Marxist line on religion because it is a matter of historical fact that religious institutions. You don't even need to take all of human history, which you probably could. But you know, just in the period of 
the rise of capitalism in the West, I mean, the churches have overwhelmingly been on the side of of capital and the state, and and that's that's worth taking very seriously. But on the other hand, I, I I do think that faith can be most valuable in these moments where it seems like hope has disappeared. And I'm I'm very guided in my thinking on this by the thinker Ernst Bloch, who was raised Jewish, became a secular Marxist, and and late in life. Um, sort of began to to rediscover the kind of Christian intellectual tradition and and wrote some great books on on that. For Bloch, the the concept of, of faith is tied very closely to a sense of of hope and and hope not just in the sense of I want things to to turn out well, but hope in the sense of the the possibility of a, a real kind of revolutionary transformation, a new creation in the the biblical language. The other Gramsci quote that that people like to bandy about is, you know, the, the call for pessimism of, of the intellect and optimism of the will, which is all well and good, but it's easier said than done. And I think that there's a, a sense that in, in times like these, it can be really tough to, to keep going. And it doesn't need to be Christianity. It doesn't even need to be religion. But, you know, I was thinking of um, with the, the very sad news about Mike Davis going into to hospice care as rereading some of his writings, and there's a, a beautiful passage where he describes socialism as his religion. And I think that, you know, that equation, because it was a feature of Cold War anti-socialist thought, is something a lot of socialists bristle against. But, you know, the, the point that he's making there is that you need something in your life that is going to to keep you going when it seems like that kind of opportunity for making a, a new world seems like the, the odds are really long that kind of horizon of uh, hope is is vanishing and so you know what i want to say again it doesn't need to doesn't need to be christianity you know if you if you can find it in christianity i think that that's that's great but whatever it is it's worth having a sense of humility about what despair can can do and the kinds of traps that that people uh on the left who who really do believe in the world beyond capitalism the kind of traps that they can fall into when they succumb to despair. Although when we have this uh, Supreme Court now that seems to be imposing a theocracy on us, um, it gets to be a hard argument to make, right? Yeah, exactly. And again, this is why I think that there is it's it's important to distinguish between religion and and especially tradition. You know, some there can be value in in the past, but I think that valuing religion because it's traditional, you might start from a vaguely leftist anti-capitalist perspective, but I think that that always leads you to the right. And, you know, certainly at a time when, you know, I, I think you're exactly right. The the critique of mainstream Christian conservatism is, is really vital. And I think that, that people on the left should not shy away from that just because if their allies on, on the Christian left are, are real allies, then then they won't get scared by saying very forthrightly what's what's going on and the role of, of Christianity in the contemporary right-wing revival. That was Eric Baker, a lecturer at Harvard and author of The Only Way Out is Through Against Reactionary Anti-Capitalism on the Christian Socialist website, Bias Magazine. We discussed the work of Melinda Cooper. Cooper, a professor at the Australian National University, was on this show in February 2019 to discuss her book Family Values, which explores the relationship between free market economics and traditional values. Here's about six minutes of that interview. All the fantasies that uh, free marketeers talk about, uh, of freedom in the market, of laissez-faire, um, rests on a foundation of a coercion uh, in personal relations. This is right, yeah. And they don't often admit this. I mean, particularly in the American tradition, there's a kind of, how can I put it, there's a kind of insouciance to the American neoliberal tradition. So where you find uh, European neoliberals are also social conservatives, and they're quite explicit about their social conservatism being the necessary counterpart to their liberalism. Much more often in the American context, you find people like Milton Friedman, who really at a personal level seem to be quite naive economic liberals. So there's moments where he confronts the necessity of forced labor or enforceable kinship relations or inheritance. There are moments of great surprise and wonder to the point that you wonder was he really genuinely that naive? I mean, there are a few American neoliberals who are uh, a little less naive. So there's someone like James Buchanan. He has a fantastic article, The Samaritan's Dilemma, 
where he's talking about the dilemma of providing welfare. And he comes up with this idea that you really do need to enforce threats at some point if you want to retain a so-called market in free labor. So you need to enforce these family responsibility rules or you need to enforce work for welfare. It can't just be a threat. There's a real difference between the American neoliberals and the American paternalists, say someone like Lawrence Mead, who is the architect of work for welfare, workfare. And you can sense his exasperation with the American neoliberals, that they can't see that you will need to enforce labor at some point. At the same time, in the early 1970s, the U.S., Nixon was talking about uh, expanding the family wage uh, to um, black people. And then Reagan was governor of California, launching a war on welfare. How did these things fit together? Um, Were these just contradictory moments or this is a point in uh, departure? Yeah, it is. Like there there was a real cleavage between these two positions. And at the time, Reagan seemed like the extreme marginal one. But of course, that, that changed in the long run. I see Nixon's family assistance plan as the kind of higher point of New Deal, Great Society, liberalism, and and it ended up being the last hurrah of Great Society, liberalism. And in some ways it was a social conservative move, but in other ways it was like an extreme expansion of the the entitlement programs of the the New Deal. It was a way of saying we will take this kind of um, marginal degraded program, which was welfare, aid to families with dependent children, which was under the control of the states, which meant that it could be whittled down and subject to all kinds of conditionalities. And we'll make it a federal entitlement. We'll make it a living wage which was something that activists on the left in the welfare rights movement had been campaigning for for a long time because at the time to be a federal program meant that it would be more progressive and more secure. But at the same time, it was a social conservative move. It was a direct response to Moynihan's infamous report, his complaint that welfare was subsidizing single-parent families and that was undoing the black family, emasculating black men. So written into Nixon's family assistance plan was the idea that benefits would be extended to intact families. And in fact, I think the idea was to incentivize marriage formation and um, and the creation of intact families amongst uh, African-Americans. Um, And there was an incredible consensus, like retrospectively, it just seems quite counterintuitive because the people on board with this were one Milton Friedman, you know, a position that seems just uh, incomprehensible in retrospect, but he was actually in charge of the policy design of the the benefit as a negative income tax. Uh, You also had people, neoconservatives like uh, Moynihan. Uh, you had liberals, Great Society liberals like Tobin and Galbraith who were on side, and of course Nixon. So there was this incredible consensus. And Reagan was really, Reagan as governor of California was really at the margins. He was considered to be on the extreme right of the Republican Party. And at the very same time as these people were um, uh, elaborating on and, and supplementing the New Deal entitlement structure and perfecting the family wage, as it were, Reagan was saying, no, I want to undo the benefits that are available to uh, welfare recipients in the state of California, and I want to return to the family responsibility tradition, which was still on the book. So he was uh, very innovative in uh, reviving all kinds of rules about tracking down the putative biological fathers of children on welfare, this kind of thing that later became very uh, familiar. He was very explicit that this was about reinstating personal family responsibility uh, for welfare. Of course, in retrospect, Reagan's project in California looks very familiar because in the mid-1990s, Clinton took it to the federal stage and did something that was uh, completely novel because the poor laws had never been written into federal uh, into the Federal Social Security Act. They were completely inimical. Um, and he took the poor laws and uh, writ them large on the federal stage and made them the guiding principle uh, for the entire welfare program. That was Melinda Cooper, author of Family Values, from an interview broadcast on Behind the News in February 2019. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. 
My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of birth, school, work, death, a piece of late 1980s cheese from The Godfathers. Next, Afro-pessimism, a niche philosophy spreading among black scholars and intellectuals. Its leading proponent is Frank Wilderson III, who has a book by that title that's a mix of memoir and theorizing. Other writers in the field who might not embrace the label but are fellow travelers include Sadia Hartman, Hortense Spillers, and Sylvia Winter. Even though the position holds that black people are eternally and irredeemably subordinated, forever slaves as opposed to the rest of us who are fully human, most of these writers teach at fancy universities and get prestigious fellowships. Here to discuss the worldview and its contradictions is Jose Sanchez, author of a piece on the topic on the Jacobin Magazine website. Sanchez, who specializes in the history of the slave trade, just finished a degree at NYU and is on his way to Duke's doctoral program in history in the fall. Jose Sanchez. It seems to me that Afro-pessimism can be boiled down to a, a simple summary, that black people are regarded by non-black people, even other, what we call people of color, as hopelessly other, inferior, essentially a slave, and nothing can ever change that. And anti-blackness is fundamental to human social life, and it's not going away. Is there something beyond that, something more complex, or is that pretty much the, the whole philosophy? Yeah, that's like a good boilerplate explanation of it. And in addition, I would say that there's like this exceptionalization of black suffering and anti-blackness, which is just like a category unto itself. You cannot compare it to anti-Semitism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia. You can't make sense of it uh, through like the materialist analysis. You know, it's over and above capitalism, primordial. It's always been here. Um, it's inescapable and it'll always be here. That's just like what blackness is. And then there's this distinctive move of classifying other people of color as sort of junior partners of whiteness, really. So the, the black population is completely separate from everyone else uh, and uniquely subordinate and suffering. Yeah. And that's, for me, like one of the darkest conclusions or beliefs of Wilson and others. And this is like a new school of thought. It has antecedents, black African-American intellectual history, if you want to call it that. But um, yeah, Junior partners, that's what, you know, Wilson calls like other people of color. And it sort of like narrows the spheres of the allyship. You can't depend on the white people to be allies to black struggle. You can't depend on other people of color. Other people of color who are not black are in cahoots with white supremacy. You know, it's just like us black folks against the world. With that comes this minimization and this mystification of other systems of racialized oppression that other racialized peoples face. Palestinians, indigenous Americans, Asian Americans, Jews even, no matter what class, background, or gender, or sexuality, no matter what other non-Black people of color face, even if they face like racialized oppression, and they do, but they're still like in league with white folks with white supremacy, because they're all united in anti-Blackness against Black folks. What's the motive? Why? I mean, you could talk about slavery. The slave owners wanted to make money from their slaves by paying them nothing and exploiting them miserably. You know, even after slavery, Jim Crow, uh, the white elite wanted to maintain a social order that kept them on top of things. What's the motive in this case? Why, um, in the Afro-pessimist worldview, what is the motive of non-black people for um, this utter marginalization and uh, contempt for, for black people? Hard to say. There's not much of an explanation beyond saying that in order for other people to make sense of their own selves as humans, which he and other African pessimists are opposed to slaves, blacks are slaves, other people are humans, which is sort of like a weird adaptation of racism and racist ideology itself, which always struck me as like ironic. 
yeah, it's just like sort of this psychoaffective explanation or viewed or grounding like other people in order for them to conceive themselves as human beings they have to juxtapose themselves and separate themselves from the non-human who are black people who are also slaves and so i guess that's sort of what the explanation is for why like non-black folks want to believe that um, black folks are other and separate and will forever be otherness and separate and have always been other and separate. It's just like a psychological conception of racism, I guess. Some degree of pleasure and psychic coherence is what it uh, provides uh, to the oppressor. Yeah, like they're always talking about like the libidinal economy. You explore some affinities with Zionism, between Afro-pessimism and Zionism. What are they? This essay by a Jewish studies scholar, uh, Shaul Magid at Dartmouth. And he also found this biography of Meir Kahane, this far-right, Brooklyn-born Zionist from the, what, 60s, 70s, 80s. He did this really interesting thing, and he went through different writings by Kahane and others, and was thinking about, oh, how do they explain Jewishness, and then how, does, how, do, how do those explanations compare to how Afro-pessimists think about and write about Blackness and racism and Afro-Blackness, white supremacy, etc. And he found, like, these connections between, like, a more trans-historical explanation and this, like, uh, essentialist explanation of Jewishness. There's a character to Jewishness that is, you know, almost internal, primordial, and unchanging that may or may not be, like, divine in origin. Jews are separate from and will forever be separate from the Goyen who hate us, have always hated us. And you can look at different episodes about time, pogroms, the Holocaust, etc. And that hatred is has nothing to do with like historical flows and there's no sense of like continuities or changes. There's no shades or tints to it. Um, it's just all the same. It's just that same constant, unmovable wall of hatred. It doesn't change according to place. It doesn't change according to period or era. Um, it's just the same. And so the Zionist solution to that essentialization and exceptionalization of identity, of Jewish identity, was settler colonialism and like the settlement and the colonization of Palestine. And so Afro-pessimists, similarly, like, you know, I've said before and as I've uh, written about, there's this essentialization, this exceptionalization, and just this like Manichaean conception of blackness, whiteness, and identity, race, etc. That is many conceptions, like Zionist conceptions of Jewishness, separatist and nationalistic, right? And you see iterations of that throughout time, Garveyism, the Nation of Islam, certain elements of the Black Power Movement, and even earlier in the 19th century. Speaking of the 19th century, uh, when you know Zionism really takes root, most people, I guess, would say that if the Zionist solution to this problem of Jewishness, of race, or what have you, ethnicity, uh, sort of colonialism, there's no analogous sort of situation historically to the problem of uh, Black identity. Well, most people don't know about Liberia, but I point to Liberia as an example of where this sort of racial politics, the this sort of discourse of identity has led to in the past. The Liberia precedent is interesting because, it, first of all, it reminded me of um, the collaboration between uh, Zionists and Nazis in Germany. Both sides wanted the Jews out of Germany, and the Zionists thought that'd be a great way to settle Israel. But uh, there was a collaboration between like, abolitionists and anti-Black racists at the root of the Liberian experiment. How did it come to be, and what did it become? Sierra Leone, you know, this earlier example of sort of a place where Afro-diasporic peoples, freed slaves, etc., could settle back in the so-called motherlands. And, of course, for a lot of the slaves that the British had, they would intercept slave ships, oftentimes ones that were in contravention of bilateral treaties to like, suppress the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade. They would intercept those ships, punish the slavers, the illegal slave traders, send them to Sierra Leone. And, you know, have this polyglot, multilingual, multi-religious community. And so a little bit after that, you have Liberia, which is more of an American uh, experiment. Slaveholders and 
some abolitionists wanted to solve the race problem in America. And some wanted to get rid of like free blacks from America because, you know, the more free blacks there were and they were just like walking around, they would be living examples to enslaved peoples um, of like, oh, here's the life that you could lead. These are the people that you could be. So, you know, we have to give it to free blacks. So let's send them to this colony. And then others believe that should slavery end in America, whites and blacks would never get along. Uh, the free people, the free slaves would not get along with whites because whites and blacks cannot get along. Uh, they've never gotten along. They are forever different. And so here's this place that we can send them all to just in case. And, you know, there's like echoes of that in, I guess, a Judeo-Pessimist or Zionist conception of like Jewishness. And of course, in the Afro-Pessimist conception of uh, Blacks and why non-Black people hate Black folks. But then Liberia gets established and it turns into yet a new realm of exploitation. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the founding leaders of Liberia were the, the wealthiest petite bourgeois or bourgeois elements of the Black communities in the North and in the South. And there was this conflict between um, mulatto Liberians and then like darker-skinned Liberians. And a lot of the mulattoes were wealthier because they were descendants of white elites versus perhaps the darker-skinned um, Liberians who had like more of a middle class or like a, like a lower tiered class position in Liberian society, settler society, because they were descendants of enslaved black folks. But then also indigenous Africans were written out of the founding documents of the, of the settler colony, out of the Declaration of Dependence um, and other laws. And there was this system of um, hut taxes and labor exploitation um, it's something akin to slavery, really, uh, that develops towards the end of the 19th century into the 20th towards um, indigenous Africans. So it's just sort of like this recapitulation of, of settler colonialism and racism, but in a different context. And, you know, Blackness, I guess I use the example of Liberia to show just how malleable identity um, race and Blackness is and how fictive these things are. They are lethal fictions, but... I think we can't lose sight of the fictitiousness and just how that fiction can just be such a lethal tool about time and space, you know? I'm speaking with Jose Sanchez, author of an article on Afro-pessimism on the Jacobin website. In your piece, you say Afro-pessimists take the slaveholders at their word and mourn the non-humanness of the slave is marked in their very being, ignoring the tenacious humanity exercised by the enslaved at every turn. Could you uh, expand on that? Like, whenever I read Wilson and others... I've always felt this knee-jerk, like, revulsion, like, you know, I'm Black, I'm not a slave. I mean, the world that I inhabit and the circumstances that I live in, sure, it's molded in part by the legacy of slavery, the afterlife of slavery, yet it also is not. I mean, so much has changed, so much has not changed, sure, but, like, change is still taking place, and I think they just sort of collapsed the past and the present into just like this unchanging same. And that sort of just like flattens and mystifies everything that has happened, um, everything that is, thing, and just sort of like clouds future and denies the possibility that things can get any better. Wilson and other pessimists who are tenured academic, who make six figures, who are well and above, let's say, like the situation of myself. You know, I'm a graduate student. I'm, I just graduated the master's. From New York University, between that, um, and you know, just like all the sufferings that graduate students face and adjuncts and have you. I mean, as far as academia is concerned, they're doing pretty well. But for them to say then that they are slaves, right? That kind of just like papers over and mystifies their actual class position and status. And I think that's pretty useful for them and other Black folks who are privileged, who are middle class. I don't know if you're familiar with the K high. People who like criticize, let's say, Kamala Harris or New York City. Oh, yes, the K-Hive, yes. A lot of times, you know, when people criticize these Black blue and class figures, they will be like, oh, you can't because they're Black, thus they are oppressed, and you yourself are the racist. And so it's really useful for Black folks 
of a particular status to maybe identify as eternally a slave or something, but that's just not the reality of the situation that we're in. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the leading exponents of this teach at prestigious universities, or as you pointed out, make nice salaries, um, have received the most prestigious grants, MacArthur Genius Awards, Guggenheim Fellowships, all these sorts of things. What does that say about this philosophy? It could be situated in some kind of uh, social base. Who are the leading proponents? To whom does it appeal? I think it appeals to a Black elite. Like I said, I'm Black. I'm in prestigious academic institutions. I was mostly raised in a upper middle class suburb out in Jersey, outside Manhattan, full of like Wall Street dads and moms. I, I don't know if it's weird to say, but see myself in this sort of anxiousness of, you know, you're integrated into the ruling elites or like a step below to a three steps below them. Yet you are also racially marked and you're supposed to be the other black folks, right? Um, mired in impoverishment and just residential segregation and educational non-attainment, so to speak, but you're not. So what does that say about who you are? Are you really Black? And so to inhabit that anxious middle ground, the classic sentiment of the middle class is anxiety, right? Of the petite bourgeois, of the intelligentsia. So a solution to that would be to adopt this pastiche or kind of made up identity of Blackness as forever oppressed and what have you, even if it sort of mystifies the actual situation that you that you inhabit, that you embody. And so I think it's really a sort of solution to a, and maybe I'm sort of doing a psychoanalytic move right now, but I, this philosophy is useful as like a class tool, like I said, right? Um, to like deflect legitimate criticism, criticisms of like the Black elite. But I also think it's almost like a psychoaffective solution to just the anxieties of a Black middle class or elite who are sure Black and racially marked, yet do not live the experiences of the Black masses in ghettos across the United States and in, you know, Global South situations throughout the world. There must be something appealing to certain white elites, too, because given how well-funded these folks are, there must be some appeal to the idea that nothing can ever change. Let's them off the hook, you know? Whoever the people who give these awards out to and approve of these professorships and what have you, Cynthia Hartman lives in, like, a what, upper west side, like, penthouse um, given by Columbia. Those white elites, they don't have to give away their money, they don't have to distribute anything if nothing's ever going to change. And then these Black academics, these elites, they don't have to do anything besides like deflect criticism, you know, in bad faith, calling other people racist, right? Or calling Black critics of them the tools of racists, right? It just lets everybody off the hook. So I don't even think like a Liberian solution, I mean, that's just like totally exhausted. I think what we have right now is just this further integration of Black folks into a ruling class, an elite, into, into these prestigious institutions that are dominated by capital, by white capital, if you want to call it that, and who are over and above working class people of all colors, disproportionately so, um, of the Black folks. So that's what the situation is right now. And I think that's why it's come about. But also, you know, it's a bleak time to live in. There's we just had eight years of a Black president, but they did nothing for us, for Black folks, for the Black masses. Racism continued. We're still getting shot dead in the streets, so on and so forth. So I sort of understand that, too, that piece of it. We're living in bleak times. The global South, the non-white countries, the dark nations, as Vijay Prashad would put it, are going to face the brunt of ecological collapse over the next century. I understand the temptation, even if it's not something that can offer any sort of solution to the present, to the present struggles. Yeah, there's no political program that comes out of this. Yeah, exactly. It's just, um, what's the word, quiescence? Well, finally, um, is there anything to take from this? You know, it's hard to deny, for example, that black people have a unique history of oppression in the U.S., and yeah. if not intractable, it's extremely persistent. It's almost an immigrant rite of passage to learn to look down on black Americans. How do we acknowledge this unique history without reifying it to something permanent, 
transhistorical, or on the other side, dissolving it into some kind of anodyne universalism that tries to resolve all the contradictions prematurely. So how how should we think about this unique situation of blackness in America without falling into this kind of rigid, essentialist, uh, nihilistic philosophy? Thank you for the question. Still trying to work through that. I almost want to say that the solution would be like a Marxist analysis, right, or a materialist analysis that could sort of historicize the origins of this situation that Black folks are in, that can still sort of trace changes and shifts throughout time. You know, race, sure, has shifted through time, but what has probably not really entirely shifted is just the regime of class rule. Sure, different like regimes of classes have changed, slaveholders uh, versus industrialists versus the white yeomen, but uh, you know, it's a difficult question. Uh, I'm not sure how to answer that, but it is one of the questions of American life, I guess. It's not not one we can solve here, but by coming up with this philosophy that's almost too easy to caricature, it really um, undermines taking the problem with the seriousness it deserves. Yeah, I mean, if you sort of believe that. Racism has no beginning, then it doesn't really have an end. It lets everybody off the hook. You don't really have to delve too much deeper into it. You don't have to do the work that maybe Eric Williams has done, you know, decades ago, where he traces how the racialization of enslaved people in the hemisphere goes from like indigenous folks to like whites, sort of, to blacks, based on like economic and like wider economic and social factors, historical factors. You know, to do that careful work, you can, you can just kind of say, oh, you know, black people have always been saved forever, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The Afro-Pessimist solution is not a good one. Uh, it doesn't have any sort of explanatory power, not nearly as much as like maybe Marxist analysis that uh, Williams or David Rodiger, Nell Painter, the Fields sisters, the work that they do. That was Jose Sanchez, author of a piece in Afro-Pessimism on the Jacobin Magazine website. As he puts it in his Twitter bio, he studies sexuality and slavery in the Black Atlantic. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Keith Jarrett performing the 26th of Box Goldberg Variations. Till next week, bye. <laughs>